Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's safe. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And you know that because you just listened to the intro. I was super excited, as you can tell by my keyed up interview with uh, Tara Brock. I was super excited to get to interview her. I mean, just excited just to talk about her right now because um, her podcast has become such a part of my life. Um, she is a meditation teacher. She's written two books, uh, Radical Acceptance and True Refuge. Um, and you can download her podcast for free, same as this one. That said, if you have the money, please donate. It makes a huge difference. It's actually how we were able to get her here because she doesn't live in New York. Um, and same goes for hers. Um, and I also will recommend her uh, workshops she does and also just say that these conversations are just that. They're candid conversations. So uh, I mess up in them. I say things and then I'm like, did I mean that? It's the same way one would at a dinner party, um, but with a little bit more background and research and knowing um, who the person is and knowing um, that they know that they are in safe hands. Um, so... Without further ado, here's our very candid conversation that was recorded live at Joe's Pub. Enjoy. I'm very, very excited to welcome our first guest. She's come all the way from Washington, D.C., where she created the Insight um, Meditation Center there. And she also has over 200,000 downloads a month for her podcast, which I strongly recommend you check out. It's called Tara Brock. She's listened to in over 150 countries. She is Two books that she's done, Radical Acceptance and True Refuge. Um, she has beautiful workshops. And um, most importantly, I'm so delighted to have her in person, a psychologist turned meditation teacher. And now, finally, I think she's dreamed about this her whole life, an Employee of the Month Award winner. Please welcome Ms. Tara Brock. Chill like that, we meditate like that, we out, we out. Tara, when everyone sees you, do they like bow like this? No, I do the bowing. Okay. Does it get weird in like Japan where they're like going right away too? Depends if they go for the feet, touching the feet, that's the big deal, you know. Do people do that with you? Oh, oh, no. Thank the Lord, no. <laughs> They don't do, not yet, no, not yet. Not, A girl can dream. Not never, please. Okay. <laughs> um, most reform lawyers in Washington, D.C., where you live, were either, um, you know, politicians or indicted. Um, but you uh, lived in an ashram for 10 years. Can you talk about what led you there? Yeah, I started doing yoga when I was in college. And the yoga, I mean, it was kundalini yoga, and it was an athletic kind of yoga. And it made me feel you know, totally energetic and high and good. And I decided I, and, and when I'd get quiet, and I'd notice this after I do the yoga, I'd find that sometimes for the first time ever, my mind and my body were in the same place at the same time, because <laughs> usually my mind was. So I just started really going deeper into it. And that, you know, I decided I just want to live that lifestyle where I was doing a ton of it all the time. 
Um, what was it like, um, you know, having an arranged marriage and being part of a very strict culture for 10 years? You know, when I first joined Katie, it was all about the yoga, and it was really um, opening heart and coming into presence, and service was a really big part of it, you know. And only as I stayed and got more involved did I find the organization was really tight. And mostly I stayed and did the stuff I love doing and tried to ignore it, but after a while it got to me, and I left. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what specifically got to you? And I, I don't mean to irritate you by being like, tell us your worst memories. But, <laughs> but, but <laughs> what about it was sort of the catalyst to say, you know, fuck this. I think I'm going to go back to um, wearing something besides Birkenstocks. <laughs> Actually, we, we were one of the original ones that sold Birkenstocks in Harvard Square. So I was, and I sold them. Guys, did not know that beforehand. <laughs> did not know that fun factoid beforehand. <laughs> Claim to fame here. <laughs> Just sheer intelligence, really. Yeah. Wisdom is what they call it. Yeah, yeah. Wisdom of the soul, actually. The yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be replacing Tom's very soon as the, the new shoe wear consultant. Um, yes, what, what, what inspired you to say, I, I can't do this anymore? It was when I started finding out more and more about the leader of the group, and he was um, having sex with his students and involved with shady stuff, and it was a real, um, it was just too much to participate and know that. And he, at one point, um, emotion was emotionally abusive to me, and it was one of those moments in my life, and I hadn't been abused before in that way, that I realized that um, to be true to myself and to trust myself meant not following a cult leader like that. How do you, how do you cope with that in general? I mean, I sort of was joking with you earlier about how, you know, I used to, my idols growing up were Bill Cosby and, and Woody Allen. How, how do you cope with, um, you know, not throwing the, the baby or the teenage daughter out with the bathwater kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it never felt to me like because he was, um, you know, power had really taken away, you know, he had charisma and power and had, you know, violated it. It didn't occur to me that spirituality or the yoga or the meditation was off. I just didn't want to be part of the organization. And so after leaving the ashram, that's when I started reading more books on Buddhism and went to my first Buddhist retreat, which felt different and cleaner. And I just want to be clear for anyone listening at home, here, or uh, anywhere, that Buddhism is wonderful and so are <laughs> Sikhs, but I did want to talk about the fact that all of our religions, and not just the monotheistic ones, have uh, patriarchal structures to them. You guys uh, may remember that word from ninth grade. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but, you know, I mean, that it just is a facet of anything that's older. Um, that there are going to be traditions that you may not want to keep up. How do you decide now that you're a meditation teacher uh, which aspects you keep with you and which, which parts you sort of decide, okay, I want to do a more unique approach or modern approach or postmodern, depending, really, or neo-post, I mean, really depends. <laughs> Neo-squared, actually. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Um, Every, every spiritual group and every religion has a shadow side and we're, because humans are in it, you know, and humans get greedy and humans want to prove themselves and so on. So 
It's the same with Buddhism. I mean, I think of Buddhism right now, and I think of Burma and some of the other places where the, you know, Buddhists are, Buddhist monks are actually, you know, uh, violating and oppressing uh, Muslim groups. And so there's nothing particular about any group that's, you know, golden. But your question's really like, how do you know what to keep? And that's where it's really um, coming back to our own hearts. It's like you can't follow anything. You can take in um, what seems like beautiful teachings or practices, but we can't abandon ourselves. We have to keep on, you know, discriminating with our own hearts and minds. Speaking of discriminating, um, I'm just kidding. I just like... (laughs) I just like to say that. Um, it's a nice word. I like it too. Um, now that mindfulness has become um, so in fashion that uh, companies um, are using it as part of their marketing, I was curious, um, have you started trademarking any words? Um, and you know, how do, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the commodification of mindfulification? Awful, awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, like yoga. I mean, you can spend, you know, $800 on a mat that has Gucci on it, you know, and it's amazing. Can you really? I don't know. I made that up. Okay. Little, you know, but no, you can, <laughs> you can buy those big golden Buddhas that are actually made of chocolate and give it for Easter to someone. And, you know, everything's becomes like that. But, you know, it's, I actually believe that consciousness is waking up around the world. And I believe that more and more people are deepening their attention and really tuning into what does it mean to be present and what does it mean to be real. I just think that's happening. I think that's the evolution of consciousness. And so, to me, that's a good thing. And if it has its ego contracted forms, like it gets into the culture in certain ways and it's adopted in business so that you can have clearer focus so you can make more money so you can have more power, you know, that's going to be part of the ripple and that's okay. I think just the training in how to pay attention to the present moment eventually will lead people to a place of a natural kind of caring because mindfulness leads to opening the heart. Speaking of money, um... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I never know what word you're going to catch on to here. (laughs) you drive a BMW. I would love to drive a BMW. So uh, I, I don't say, have a BMW oh, you don't anymore. Have a BMW. No. Not anymore. Um, well, I would love to take it from you. But um, in all seriousness, how does one make a living as a meditation teacher? You know, I had a Washington Post um, interview done on me, and the you know it was a basically it was an okay interview, except for the reporter latched onto the BMW. And, and I, I latched onto her latching. Exactly. And, I wanna, I wanna and now you, you that... all are invited to latch onto. <laughs> It and I, but itself. I didn't. What she didn't say was that it was 12 years old and worth five thousand dollars because I just traded it in. So um, anyway, I got rid of it, so no no reporter could say I had a BMW. <laughs> I upgraded to a new Audi. Okay. <laughs> how, how how do you how you do you sustain a living? I mean, it's similar for artists. It's certain similar across fields. How does one sustain a living and do something that is meaningful to them? And in particular, you know, you allow your podcast to be downloaded for free all over the world. And I am alive in part because of it. I feel it's been such a um, sacred part of my life. But I am curious, like, how, how do you sustain a living? 
Well, I was a psychologist. I mean, I'm still a psychologist. I was seeing clients, so I was able to do this weave and occupy a niche of um, how to bring mindfulness and compassion practice and meditation to difficult emotions. And that's really an attractive niche, and because I was qualified as a psychologist also, I was able to offer workshops that command more money. So I do some stuff for total free, and but what enables me to live is that I'll go then and teach a Kripalu and or, you know, Omega or somewhere else and get a lot of money. How do you feel about that? I feel really good about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, also, I I wrote two books, and the books give me some credibility also, and they bring in revenue and so on. Fabulous. Did you like my... Because I didn't finish my doctorate, but how, how do you feel about my questions so far? Do they feel like a therapist? I'm not feeling like a client. I'm just kind of scrambling a little to make sure that I'm coming from the most real part of me. And what enables you to scramble? Um, (laughs) You and the kind of questions you're asking. (laughs) But it's a fun scramble. It's like, it's it's juicy. Yeah. Speaking of juicy, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you can't get away with that too many more times. Okay, we're done. This is we're the done. queen of Segway. <laughs> okay, we're, we're done with my terrible jokes. Um, I get, you know, so I was having uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and I was saying prayers that I don't really understand, but I learned the transliteration. So I get how Jews are attracted to yoga um, and saying. <laughs> You know, prayers that we don't really understand in Sanskrit and, and hoping that, you know, our friends who are Indian aren't horrified by it. Um, who else is attracted, do you find, to yoga and meditation? Well, actually, different types are attracted to actually yoga and meditation. Okay. I mean, a lot of people now think of yoga as a really um, effective way to be healthy, just physical health alone. And so that so that's a huge huge genre, you know. But uh, meditation is usually there's some there's a certain amount of people. I want to relieve stress. I want to relax. I want to be able to calm down. There's a certain number of people that were just told to by their doctors or therapists, and they agree to do it. Um, you know, they tr- they try it out. I get a lot of people that at my Wednesday class that were sent there by their therapist. A lot of times, people are struggling with addiction, and meditation is. There's a um, line from Viktor Frankl that's between the stimulus and the response. There's a space, and in that space is your power and your freedom. And it's a it's very powerful because. I mean, I've had AA sponsors say that learning the art of the sacred pause, which is basic in the training of mindfulness, was more effective for people in 12-step programs than like two years of meetings. Now, it's not actually an either-or, but the capacity to pause instead of tumble forward into the thoughts and the behaviors that keep us stuck um, actually gives us a chance to make a choice and come from a, a deeper, wiser place in us. So there's a lot of people that are struggling with addiction that get drawn. And then on the deepest level, I think we all want to love well and, and really live from a full heart, an open heart, and um, be able to face our life with that, that heart and that wisdom. And so more and more people, I think, are coming truly because they want to be all that they can be. 
how do you cope? Like, you, you know, you have people coming to you who um, said, thank you, I didn't commit suicide because of you, or telling you, you know, really terrifying and traumatizing stories of their very true experiences of being refugees or escaping this or domestic violence. How, how, how do you deal with um, hearing these stories? And, and um, in basically, you know, how, how do you deal with the stress of it? You know, when I um, wrote True Refuge, that's my second book, it came out of being really, really sick. And I was sick for about eight years. With Fragile X, is that correct or no? Mm, uh, with, yeah, a premutation of Fragile X, okay. which has a connective tissue. And I was becoming less and less mobile and losing the capacity to do everything I loved. And, I, and it looked like it was going to continue to go downhill. And it didn't. I'm much better. But... I didn't know that was what was going to happen. So it was a lot of fear, a lot of grief. And it was out of that that I wrote True Refuge because I found so much um, healing and uh, nourishing and comfort in learning how to just come into presence. It's like, stop thinking about the future, just contact the moment. And then I'd find so much tenderness and space and actually freedom in the moment. So when I wrote about that, people started telling me their stories. And I had, like you say, I get, I hear a lot of stories that I think, wow, I wouldn't be able to deal with that. Like people whose children commit suicide, or, you know, in their 20s, or things that just are like beyond what I can imagine. But that found that by taking refuge in presence, in love, they found a space in them that could hold it. So when people tell me that, it brings up a sense of, I feel humble and I feel grateful. But uh, I appreciate that part, but I'm wondering how do you deal with the stress of hearing these things? Does that make sense at all? Um, people go to you to seek refuge. <laughs> Where do you go? I, to exactly what I'll be sharing with them, I go to whatever brings up a sense of love and connection and presence. So when people come to me, I'm helping them to find their way to that. Because it's in every human heart. It's in every awareness. Okay, so you don't go to, like, Diane Warwick when she was alive, the psychic, or to Oprah, or... I don't or have a channel. Or, or, no, 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 okay. no, no, no. Okay. But I, if there was one out there to call on, that would be helpful. You would, you would go. <laughs> um, I, I did want to ask you also about um, deification and being deified as a yoga instructor that happens to them I know you're not a yoga instructor but it does happen to even yoga instructors and I'm sure it happens as a meditation teacher what are the pros and cons um, of being deified <laughs> so people come up to me and say you saved my life or you know like they've put me up on a pedestal like I have some special powers or whatever and, and, and really want to express their gratitude. And in the old days, I'd very quickly say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me, it was you, it was the wisdom in you that, you know, I'd turn it back on them. But I found that it's more important to pause and let gratitude be expressed. And, and not, to, it washes through. I, you know, if in the moments that I'm insecure, if it inflates me, that's just life. But if it inflates me, then it ends up leaving me feel actually more ashamed because inflation never really feels good. It does for moments sometimes. For moments. Oh, that's why we keep going yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. But, more, but more I get it's not me, you yeah. know, so, yeah. Um, how much does the voice of a meditation teacher, such a soothing voice, how much does that come into play? 
Did you have the voice before you became a meditation teacher? Or did you get your voice after? Oh, I trained for years. <laughs> Let's just try something. Let's just try something. I would like to read a quote. You're going to read it the way you read it. And then I'm going to read it the way that my mother reads it. We're just going to do a little guess and see which one's more soothing. We'll just figure it out. Quite simply, if you're feeling anxious, angry, a sense of shame, whatever it is, breathe in and agree to touch or feel it. Breathing out, offer space and care to whatever's there. If there's blocking to touching it, emphasize the in-breath and stay embodied. Quite simply, if you're feeling anxious or angry or a sense of shame, whatever it is, just breathe in and fucking agree to touch or feel it. Well then, goddamn it, breathe out, offer space and care to whatever the fuck's there. If there's blocking to touch it, emphasize the in-breath and stay embodied. And get married, Katie. Get married. So, one of the things that's sort of a, a, a job requisite, I would say, for you is having aphorisms. I'm not always sure of um, the difference between aphorisms and cliches, and I know you're going to win this, but I thought we should have an aphorism off and see who can last longer. Now, I think the only way forward is through. And I think the only way through is by keeping your heart open. Point. You know, penny wise, pound foolish. <laughs> when you're present, it's like falling off a log. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Indeed, if that person's a friend, you can really trust them, open to them, and be at peace with them. Would a rose by any other name smell so sweet? Only if you stop and smell it. Gotcha! I think she won. Katie, I think she won. Can't we stop there? <laughs> I got three seconds. Three seconds. Um, I just want you to know that you're the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> and the, tur the bird with two wings are the wings of freedom and the wings of... What? Um, you're making that one up. I've never heard that one before. I almost said the turd, so I almost <laughs> lost. <laughs> to everything, there is a season. To every season, there is a turn. Okay, I think Tara Brock is the winner. I want all of you to turn to Tara Brock for more than your aphorisms and cliches, but also for true refuge. Um, I would like to give you some, some parting gifts for um, sitting through this. I got you some uh, artisanal Brooklyn chocolate, which is what everyone needs in life, um, as well as um, one book I told you about earlier about an activist. And I don't think as a meditation teacher you've probably gotten this before. This book is called Thanks for Coming. It's one young woman's quest for an orgasm. 
I'm guessing that no one has given this to you before. I mean, an orgasm, yes. But not this book. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, Tarbrock, thank you so, so much for being here, for joining us. So grateful. You guys, please keep it going for Tara Brock. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Please come to our next live tapings. You can join the mailing list, employeeofthemonthshow.com. To find out who's coming up on the next live shows, we have so many exciting guests from Kelly Ripa to Amy Sedaris to Paola Antonelli, um, a major curator at MoMA, to uh, Jason Biggs, Speedy Ortiz, uh, Josh Radner, so many, so many, so many people, and Yang Bassi, this amazing soul singer, Cindy Gallup, make love not porn. Um, so definitely get on the mailing list, and you can subscribe, as you know, to employeeofthemonthshow.com. Um, and also just subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever it is you go to get your audio downloads and check out our website's videos. All of that. Just go to employeethemonthshow.com. You can find it all there. Um, but more importantly, I hope you're finding yourself. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks. Bye.